0: Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges. Internal communication is a crucial function that helps organizations achieve lasting change. This podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work. Every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity. We really hope you enjoy listening.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Dominic Walters, joined by my co-hosts, Kat Barnard and Jen Sproul. And today, we're going to be looking away from the internal workings of organisations. I think when we talk to a lot of people who listen to these podcasts, they say that sometimes they're so involved with what's going on within an organisation that they forget to look at the areas that the organisation is going to be moving into, and the context they're going to be working in. So today, we're going to be looking at the political context for organisations and for internal communication, and what better guide than our guest, Dr Ian Wilton. Ian has a very distinguished career in policy and public affairs, having worked for a number of different organisations, from the Cabinet Office through to the BBC, the Royal Statistical Society, but is also a published author, having written the definitive definitive biography of C.B. Fry, the early 20th century, I guess, sportsman and much else, as well as works on the Festival of Britain in 1951. Ian, welcome. Please add to that t- description and tell us a bit more about you and your career, please. Uh, well, thanks, Don, very much indeed. I think
2: that's, um, that's pretty comprehensive. So thank you for uh, giving everyone that, that insight. And yeah, you mentioned that CB Fry and the fact I did a, a book on CB Fry some years ago now, 20 years ago now, in fact, and it was odd, actually. I hadn't really thought about CB Fry or the book for, for quite some time. But um, I guess podcasts are a bit like buses. They come along in sort of uh, twos or threes. So, yeah, someone recently asked me to do a, a podcast interview on CB Fry, which is great fun. So they're going to be looking at the, the book again. So um, if anyone is interested both in internal comms and in cricket, there's a podcast called The Golden Age of Cricket. And uh, you can learn
1: all you wanted about CB Fry and a lot more, I'm sure, by going to The Golden Age of Cricket. Okay, thank you. And I, I'm sure that CB Fry was a great communicator. So there's lots of communications to. Actually, he was, because apart from being this uh, extraordinary sportsman, I mean, captained England
2: at uh, cricket, played for England at football, jointly held the world long jump record, played rugby for the the Barbarians. He was, in many ways, a remarkable communicator as well, particularly a writer. So um, I got into him through being given his his autobiography, which is somewhat economical with the truth, as they say, but it's it's still a fabulous, fabulous read, beautifully written. He must be the only sportsman of his calibre who founded and edited his own magazine he wrote books on cricket and batsmanship in particular that are still acclaimed to this day and one of the things i i found in my research which i didn't believe at the the outset was someone had said well when he was a columnist for the the london evening standard sports columnist for the london evening standard they would put his column on the front page i thought that cannot be true you wouldn't have a sports columnist on the front page And then I went to the National Newspaper Library in Colindale in those days and came across some old copies of the standard from about 1938, I think it was. So you had on one side of the, literally, the left-hand side of the front page was about something like the Munich crisis. And the right-hand side of the page was this column called C.B. Fry said, writing on the cricket from Lords or the Oval or wherever. So he was an extraordinary man. And one of the things I tried to do in the book was to not only get him his full share of credit as a as a sportsman, but also try and uh, get him full credit for his, his amazing record as a writer as well.
1: Mm. Well, that's uh, another area of res- research that uh, people could look into. And then looking at your role, so currently you've been head of policy for GK Strategy, and you advise lots of organisations on how to prepare for political risk. So it would be really interesting, I think, to start by getting your definition of what a political risk is – and why organisations, and I guess particularly internal communicators, should be aware of them. And if you can, obviously without uh, breaching confidences, give us any examples of organisations that have had to face and prepare for political risks. A lot of questions, there, Ian. So, <laughs> what is a political risk? Let's start with that.
2: Uh, well, GK Strategy is a public affairs consultancy. It also does corporate communications consultancy as well but its particular area of expertise is political and regulatory risk analysis. So I think if, you know, uh, for a long time, if uh, a company, say a private equity firm, is looking to invest in another business or take it over completely it will do managerial due diligence it due diligence financial due diligence and so on but until about 10 12 years ago no one sitting in the uk was doing political and regulatory due diligence so that was the gap in the market that was spotted by uh, gk's founder robin granger and that's where the company really continues to do a lot of its you know best work I think to this day and just to give you a few sort of practical examples of that at GK we work with a lot of companies that are interested for example in investing in the the health space also in in social care and if you think of sectors like that then you know what a government or what a regulator is likely to do is incredibly important. Uh, Also we work with a number of Businesses interested in education, um, particularly alternative providers of higher education, we obviously have the traditional universities, but the uh, the conservative governments of, of recent times have been trying to encourage new entrants into the into the market. And so, if you're a company of that description, or thinking of investing in a company of that description, you absolutely need to know what the political climate is, what Ofsted is thinking, what the Department for Education is thinking. Because decisions that they might make about regulate, regulating that sector could be really important for those businesses and therefore they, for the private equity firms that are thinking of investing in them. Likewise, with social care and health that I mentioned at the outset, you know, if you are looking to invest in a business that is all about, for example, provision of social care, it's an incredibly sort of people-focused business. So one of the things you need to do is to think about you know, what either the current government might do or what an incoming government of a different complexion might do that would affect labour supply, uh, labour costs, and so on. So that's the kind of thing that a GK strategy does.
1: And yeah, hopefully, that gives an insight into political and regulatory due diligence. It does. I guess it's something that many people are almost reluctant to talk about. I was brought up in the era we were told never to discuss politics, religion, and other, th- other issues, I suppose. And so I, I know that sometimes it's hard to have a conversation about political risk because people feel it veers into their own political persuasions and people might have different views and so on. So how ready have you found people to discuss political risk and as an organisation when you've gone to talk to them?
2: I think it's, there's sort of two answers to that. One is that it it can be very difficult to speak to some of the people you want to speak to, because in a sense there is nothing in it for them. You're asking them to give up their time so that you can, you know, write something that is for the benefit of your your crime. So for a lot of people that isn't the upside for them to say yes and to give up, you know, their precious time when they've got all kinds of other commitments. So that can be problematical. But also, you can find some people who you know are a bit expert on maybe a very niche subject that you know sometimes very few people might take an interest in. so if you can identify those people and speak to them, they're often actually very, very happy for you to be tapping into their knowledge and their insights and and so on. For example, some of the people that you might you might approach in academia they've got knowledge they've built up over up over a number of years. And they're often only too keen to be asked about that and to have someone, in a sense, you know, paying them the compliment of recognising that they're a real expert and wanting their insights onto both current policy and how policy might go in the future. So it is a a hard thing, but it is about identifying a lot of the right interviewees. And if you then do the interviews right and the fact-finding process right, then those people obviously uh, are often very keen to say yes to you again in the future so you can keep going back to the
1: same people for their insights to the particular sector they know a lot about. One more question on this uh, era of political risk and I'll pass over to Kat. But uh, you mentioned clearly the, the idea that, that an incoming government may change policy and that policy may affect you. I'm just interested in knowing, are there any other aspects to political risk beyond policies that you may need to gear up? So, for example, we're saying this, we're speaking now at the end of May. We've just had elections in the UK and England, certainly. And my local council, for example, the first time in 20 years has gone from solid Conservative to a Lib Lab pact. Was that more, that's more 1970s? A Lib Lab coalition, let's say that so aside from policy what else do organisations need to think about what are the other aspects of political change that maybe we don't necessarily think about if there are any well i guess
2: speaking as someone who's like a, a sort of fiscal conservative if you like
1: one of the things that does strike me is that
2: if anyone thinks that there's going to be post the next election is going to be a, a, a major easing up on what people have you know, tended to call austerity Personally, I don't see that's going to happen, not for some considerable time anyway. And just sort of reflecting back on this, really, to when the last Labour government left office, there's the very famous note that keeps getting sort of waved around, a bit like the sort of Neville Chamberlain piece of paper, you know, signed by, signed by Hitler after the Munich Agreement. There's that famous thing left behind by the then Labour Chief Secretary to the Treasury saying, there is no money left. And that was used to in a sense, justify the austerity of the, the Cameron Osborne years. But we've got to recognise that since then, public debt has broken up by, what, a trillion pounds, maybe more than a trillion pounds, with interest rates obviously having risen recently. So there is this massive mountain of debt that we have as a, a country currently paying more interest on it than we've, we've been used to for a long period of time. So that is absorbing, just servicing that debt is absorbing a huge amount of taxpayer money. So I don't see that there is any opportunity anytime soon for people to go back and spend money you know, like it was going out of fashion, if you like. So I don't think there's going to be any return to the kind of public spending increases that we had in the the early two thousands, just because I think the the state state of the nation's finances is 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 alas pretty pretty grim and won't allow that.
3: That's really interesting, Ian. And I'm also reflecting on Dom's point about politics generally in the UK. It strikes me, I mean obviously the topic of conversation that we always come back to in this podcast is communication. We are so polarized in the UK in terms of politics Now, replicating, I guess, to a large degree, the state of US politics, but it seems to be the case that, you know, Don, where you pointed out, never talk about religion and politics, politics is like a make or break factor, isn't it? We've become really, really tribal in the way that we evaluate our political opinions and that obviously has been exacerbated massively by by Brexit I'm just wondering, I'm really curious to know from you, Ian, what you believe the key issues will be that will shape the political climate in the next few years, both in the UK and beyond. And then thinking about those, what bearing you think those factors, those political considerations will have on business in general?
2: I think it's um, interesting you talk about British politics being both very sort of divide and very tribal at the moment i absolutely see what you mean about that particularly in terms of some of the tone of politics at the moment but with people are as uh people as old as dom and myself will actually sort of remember back to uh, to earlier times when i think probably there were bigger dividing lines between the main political parties than i think there are now i think certainly with a sort of sunak jeremy hunt led government there's not a huge sort of area of division between them and uh, you know Keir Starmer Rachel Reeves politicians of that sort at the top of the Labour Party so I think the dividing lines are are smaller than they were in the sort of early 1980s we think back to say to the 1983 general election where there's probably the biggest ever contrast between the the policy packages being put forward by the two main political parties so yes I think there's a lot of division there's um, a lot of Divisive sort of mood, mood music going on, if you like. But in terms of some of the big, big issues, I'm not sure the divisions are quite as big as they they have been at certain points in the two different points.
3: So that's really interesting. Obviously, many people listening to this podcast, and you know, perhaps to some extent myself, I'm a Gen Xer, but I don't recall in any degree of detail the political climate that you allude to back in 1983, and I. It makes me wonder the extent about the extent to which our politics or our perception of politics is framed and reframed through the lens of social media. I think we can probably all agree that news reporting is shaped by speed these days. And actually, we seem to be living in a climate where it's less about the quality of the journalism and more about the speed at which a journalist can spy, you know, can publish an article and then how that proliferates across the digital webosphere. I find that very interesting that, you know, as somebody who's, who's studied politics over a long period of time, you're saying that from a policy perspective, our politics is less divided than it has been in the recent past. And so I, find, I I guess what I'm thinking about is well that's interesting, isn't it? because social media, the, the way the medium in which we consume our news clearly has bearing on our perception of politics.
2: I think that's uh, absolutely right. Your your point about social media, I think, is a is a very strong one, and it's almost like a sort of second wave, if you like. Because I think probably the, the first wave was sort of twenty four hour, pretty continuous news. I mean, when I sort of first started working in in politics in nineteen nineteen eighty eight, I think you know we we'd yet to have Sky News, for example, arriving. It came along very very soon afterwards. But I think those trends have made long term policy making more difficult. There is always this temptation to. You know, react and be distracted by the story of not just the week, but the day or the hour. So I think that is a big change that has happened over the last sort of 20, 20, 30 years. And you know, perhaps that is one of the reasons that explains why, well, two things really. One, why I think public expenditure has been ratcheted up in the way that it has over time, but also the fact that we've got a really poor record on long-term infrastructure. Because if you're being pursued about, you know, the story of the day or the story of the week, you know, the answer is politicians would not find a good answer in talking about, you know, what they might be able to deliver in 15, 20 years' time. Um, so I think there is a problem. Having said that, I think that there are some, not as many as we would like, but there are some good examples of where, you know, really good, sensible, long-term policy making has been done. I mean, uh, maybe the biggest public policy success of the last sort of 10 years maybe is pension auto enrolment that's something that is actually incredibly important it has been i think pretty successfully delivered if anything people want you know more of it rather than less and over time that will make a sort of massive difference to how well people are prepared for for their retirements so you know long term policy making can be done but i think it is more difficult now than it was 10 20 25 years ago
3: and that is fascinating because i immediately see in context what you know the, the the item that you're you're referring to and yet the good news stories always tend to get bar- buried by the kind of the bad news stories because drama sells so against our current kind of socioeconomic and environmental backdrop what would you foresee as being the key issues that are going to shape politics and policy making over the coming decade or maybe even two decades?
2: Well, I think that might be the subject for a sort of completely different podcast itself. I think we could take a huge amount of time going into that. I do think the sort of state of the public finances that I mentioned earlier, I think that is gonna be a really big, important issue for everybody. I think also the ageing population is quite significant. We're coming to you know, quite a key moment where, you know, the number of people in the working population is proportionately going to, sorry I'm phrased as well, but you know what I mean, the number of people who are actively of working population age is going to be flatlining or declining at the very same time that we have, you know, more people of, of retirement age just through through various demographic factors. And certainly one of the people who's a really key figure in GK strategy that I've done a lot of work with is David Laws, the ex-Cabinet Minister, ex chief secretary to the treasury ex-schools minister and that's one of the points that that he makes is that demographics can be a very very important factor uh, having a significant impact on a whole range of public service issues public spending issues um from now really for the foreseeable future so i think that level of debt that i mentioned at the outset is going to be important i think demographics will be really important and you, know, you go on that whole host of environmental factors for example as well i think if we want to not make ourselves too depressed i think you know that, again on some of the environmental things again if we're talking about public policy successes i think one of the things that i'll put up there with auto enrollment is the decarbonization of uk electricity supply with solar with uh, wind and so on i think that's been a big public policy success there's still some big challenges there but yeah, if you have to look at our, the, the country's record over the last sort of 15 20 years that is something I would put there with Auto Enrollment as a, a big public, public policy success of recent times.
3: Well, that, do you know what's so interesting? And before I hand over, I just want to say perhaps that's something that we ought to be thinking about as communicators to celebrate our good news stories and not just focus all the time on firefighting, the not so good news stories.
2: I think that's, that's a really interesting point. And that was brought home to me, actually, when I worked at the, um, the Royal Statistical Society's director of policy there. Um, when I joined, the president of the society was David Spiegelhalter, who's one of the country's, or the country's uh, best-known statistician. And he would frequently talk about a book, I think it's called something like The Power of Data by Hans Rosling. And it's all about how so many trends are actually improving Uh, and improving things for a lot of people both in the UK and the Western world but across the globe as well but those sort of slow steady trends tend not to get attention because you know we're all concerned or or, uh, preoccupied if you like by the sort of news stories about short-term problems here difficult problems there whether it's health education industrial action whatever it might be but sometimes that means that we don't see both uh, but some of the long-term trends that are essentially positive in the UK, uh, let alone further afield.
0: Ian, you know, I'm just jumping in now as well. It's just so fascinating to hear you talk about the things that you're aware of and, and like I say, that that space and and to see actually the longer issues, the longer time frame, because we are very, as Kat says, and you said as well, reactive and in the moment. I mean, think there's a there's a number of things that you said that I found really interesting. And obviously our listeners are in the profession of internal communication. So therefore, dealing with that that sense of employees and that, I think, a bit like we've talked about mass media can also feel very, very, the same mirrored situation in internal communication, whereby you know, employees want to hear their leaders, their organisations have, there's more demand to have their political opinions out there, to show their values, to show where they're aligning, to show what they're doing to help solve greater societal economic issues. And then we've also got that on the backdrop of like you've talked about, you know, the fact that there is an aging population. We've also got more generations working than ever before. So therefore that polarizing experience of the political landscape exists and how we all feel about that. You've talked as well about tone being really, really important. And tone is something I think that's really difficult and quite emotive and quite challenging for all of us and I also like the fact that you talked as well about in your experience and the work that you do around it's the knowledge sharing aspect and actually sometimes we're so rooted in the reaction we're not spending the time to understand and build our own knowledge to be able to advise and so I wonder I guess that's sort of just my my thoughts as hearing you chat From an internal communication practitioner's perspective um, on what they're doing to help organisations thrive, what kind of advice do you have? So if you you might be in the room with the leadership team talking about how they, you know, talk about policies and public funding and cost of living and pay and climate change. Is there a kind of any advice you would give to sort of an internal communicator, I guess, in in, in that situation, trying to advise their organisations?
2: I think a couple of points, really. One is just... Uh, clarity. I think when you're dealing with some of these very complex issues, it's really important to convey your stance on those issues to people as as clearly as you, you possibly can. And I guess just reflecting on all my years working in sort of communications disciplines of one sort or another, one thing that always amazes me actually is just the relatively small proportion of people who can actually write really really well and so i was actually really interested in listening to the previous on the previous podcast in this series to learn that the the institute emerged from the institute of industrial editors is that right is that how you start that's right, yeah,
0: okay. that's so right. i
2: think that an yeah. sort of editing skill is incredibly important to all communications whether we're talking about internal comms whether we're talking about member communications or wider public communications i think that ability to express things clearly persuasively concisely i think that's actually incredibly important to all those disciplines that's not a, a skill i think that should um, ever be underestimated so i think that's that's one of the key things i think just the other thing is just the consistency so for example i've done um, work for a couple of membership organizations and i think that's it's been helpful in terms of improving those organizations internal cons just because you know you you know you have to communicate with your members they're paying subscriptions that you know keep the organization in business. So yeah just it's absolutely not rocket science it's, it's the absolute opposite of that. But um certain a couple of organizations I just made sure that our staff were receiving everything that we sent out to our members just to make sure that you know they knew what our members were being told and it was just something at virtually no cost we could do that would enable our staff to feel much better informed about the organisation. So for example, um, I worked in the world of cricket for a number of years, worked for MCC at Lord's you know, uh, Members Club, 18,000 members, about 130 staff at the time. So we just made sure that everything that we sent to our members, we shared with our staff as well. And everything that we did in terms of communicating with our local stakeholders, again, that will go to all our staff. So it cost us nothing extra, really. But it did mean, I think, that all staff felt better informed. And there's some other sort of just sensible things in terms of internal cons there as well. So you know, launching a staff intranet, which we made sure we kept updated every day, and that basically when you logged on, that's the first thing that you would you would see and have to go through. But then we also recognised the fact that well, probably the majority of staff you know, did have desk based jobs, a whole load of them didn't. So the guys who were you know, keeping the the hallowed square at Lord, the, the hallowed uh, turf in immaculate condition, they you know most of the time they wouldn't be logging on in the morning, so we had to. Make sure we could have means of uh, reaching them effectively as well. So all the stuff I mentioned about you know, the, the intranet, the sharing of member communications materials, that would be supplemented by the good old-fashioned all-staff meeting as well because you know, they wouldn't be picking up emails probably most days. So if you wanted to, to communicate with people, you needed that, that blend of communications channels to reach the you know, very diverse workforce that we had.
0: That's brilliant. Thanks. And I I think that there's so much you said there, but I think this issue of clarity and consistency can't be underestimated. We've got some research um, coming out to look at it from the employee perspective. And the biggest issue that we're seeing is that there is a lack of clarity of understanding what is going on, where is the organisation going, what is my role in that? And I think that like we've talked about, isn't it, that sometimes because there's this kind of 24-hour continuous content and this continuing barrow, you know, It's wonderful to hear you have membership, you worked in the membership bodies. There is a, sometimes, you know, you, I can get a message and sort of go, something's happened externally. We should comment on that. We should have a view on that. We should say what our political alliances are. But I think it is staying back to that, keeping actually from that clarity and that consistency and that being measured and understanding that, I think are really, really important things for us to, to consider and something actually as humans often we just want to feel we understand the information what that means what our role is and then we're being kept in that same pace of informity as well as understanding the 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 long term things so i think that's really 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 helpful stuff to know
3: and again just jumping in i think that is really interesting because you know an observation that i have is that sometimes perhaps even often organizations may themselves be involved in some kind of campaigning but they don't necessarily have coherence in internal employee engagement. So in your experience, Ian, how should organisations, how might organisations that are involved in external campaigning best kind of engage their employees and what role might internal communication play in helping to catalyse employees behind the external campaigning
2: that's taking place. <laughs> in one sense, I'm probably the last person to ask about that because we did, um, at the Royal Statistical Society, we did a, a couple of campaigns and they actually won um, NIMCOM awards, but it was a real struggle, actually, for reasons I've never completely understood to uh, involve our staff with them in the way that we ideally wanted. So the, the, the first of the, the those award-winning campaigns was a thing called Statistic of the Year, sort of does what it says on the tin, uh, just a brilliantly... Simple idea had by the the chief executive of the of the time, but yeah, we really struggled to get staff to you know nominate figures that they 'd seen that they thought would be really interesting to you know come into contention for the either the u k statistic of the year or the international statistic of the year so that was one that rather i have to say rather stumped me because I found it fascinating every day i 'd be sort of you know consuming loads of media and i 'd see stuff that I thought you know at the very least might go on the on the long list, but most staff didn 't get in, involved in that, which we I did struggle to understand why that might be. One it was more successful in terms of engagement, we did um, a campaign to ban a thing called ministerial pre-release access. Or basically, this was all about ministers and their their closest advisors getting advance notice of some really important market-sensitive economic data. So the labor market statistics, the employment statistics, were the most obvious example. We discovered that about I think sorry, we had about one hundred and fifty people. Ministers, uh, heads of communications, special advisors, and so on were getting advanced access, I think that's 48 hours advance access to these economic statistics. And there have been some stuff, I think, in the, one of the American papers, I think it might even have been the Wall Street Journal, just pointing out there were some rather odd movements in the market sometimes in the 48 hours between this material going into ministers' private offices and the, officials, uh, the figures are officially being published. So we thought this was very bad in a whole variety of ways, not least there was this sort of risk of you know, market abuse, but also statistically we thought it was really bad practice. So we campaigned against that. And the way we thought we would highlight the extent of the problem is by getting 150 people to sign a letter to the Times saying, this is a serious problem and needs urgent reform. So the number of signatures on the letter, which would be like a hugely long list, would match. The list of people who had access to this market-sensitive data. And so, in a sense, the letter itself, for its format, would show the scale of the problem. And that's one where we didn't have a problem with certainly engaging our own members. We'd come up with a number of people who we thought would be good signatures for the letter, but we put it out there on one of our newsletters saying, look, if you feel strongly about this as well, let us know. And we had a sort of huge response from our members. And that was really helpful, A, in terms of member engagement, but also making sure that list of, you know, 150 of people was... You know, very broad, uh, very diverse, as far as we could, equal sort of male-female balance, uh, sort of good private-public sector mix. So that campaign actually worked really well. And we actually got the result we wanted within about three weeks, which is extraordinary. So that was the good
1: example. The one that, you know, for reasons I don't understand, didn't engage people so much was the statistical yeah. Ian, you, you have made a very compelling case for internal communicators getting interested in politics and how they affect the organisations they work in. And we started off the podcast by saying, looks, often internal communicators say we're so busy keeping the ship afloat, we don't always look at the weather and the navigation that are coming up, if I can probably, probably extend that metaphor too far, but they don't look at the climate that's coming along. And I think you've made a very good case. And In fact, you've shown us that things aren't always what they seem. So it may appear that we are very polarised, but actually, as at the surface, presented by social media, whereas in reality, apart from the extremes, perhaps, there's lots of of similarity of policy. And I think we've also looked at the whole idea of tone, how that can influence the way people receive information. And you've also given us um, some clear ideas about the things we should be watching out for in terms of budget, but also in terms of climate, uh, environment, but also ageing. So already you've started the process of people educating themselves around the political implications of what's going on around them. Now, it may be the case that people are saying, oh, okay, but this is still quite scary. Not everyone is uh, fascinated by politics. So for someone as an internal communicator looking to keep themselves abreast of what's going on and informed about it so they can make informed decisions, what advice would you would give them to keep up to date? Okay, that's a really interesting question. I think probably
2: got sort of three answers to that. Obviously, the most expensive option for an organisation is to think about engaging a a public affairs consultancy and obviously if the stakes are really high that is something we want to do so that agency can give you really good insights on the issues that are are of potential concern to you and for example again just referring back to people I've worked with very closely at um, GK Strategy we're very lucky to have two incredibly good strategic advisors who are both former members of parliament David Laws I mentioned earlier who is particularly good on anything to do with Education, also very good on anything to do with the economy, given his uh, city background. But also the good, sort of great thing about David is he knows a lot about a lot. So there's almost you know, any subject you can go to him on. And he'll have some really good insights to offer. One of the other strategic advisors to GK is a ex-Labor MP called Phil Hope, who used to be a health minister, also a skills minister. And I think he's really interesting because I think he's just he's just instinctively... In the Labour Party, pretty much where Keir Starmer is. So, if you want to know what a, a Keir Starmer shadow cabinet, or looking further ahead, potentially a, a Keir Starmer-led cabinet might do, or certainly think of doing, speaking to someone like Phil, who's a, from that sort of same place politically, I think is something you might want to do. I think there are two other less expensive options. I've always been, in all time, I've sort of been involved in politics one way or another. I've always been a massive fan of the parliamentary select committee system. Now, select committees don't get the attention that obviously things like prime ministers' questions do every week. But there, there were some where some of the really serious work in policy and politics goes on. And actually, you know, we were talking earlier on about, you know, our, what are the divisions between the, the, the main political parties? Well, if you want to see you know, MPs from different parties working really constructively together, you can see them doing that on select committees or on select committees when select committees are working at their best. And they can be just incredibly valuable sources of information about a particular subject. So, for example, we did a lot of work, as I mentioned earlier, on the range of health and social care issues. And so for that, it was just absolutely valuable to go and look at the health and social care select committee and some of the inquiries that it has done in recent times. There's one particularly good one they did on workforce issues. So if you wanted to see how difficult things are in terms of social care staffing or in terms of some health discipline staffing. And you could go to see the, the evidence that different organisations had put into the select committee. Then you can see the select committee's report on that subject. That's a distillation of all the evidence that it's taken and the recommendations that it makes. And then if you want a good indication of you know where the government is likely to go policy-wise, you basically wait until the government publishes its formal response to the select committee's report and recommendations. It's something it has, the government has to do. They don't always do it within the sort of time scales that are set out, but they will ultimately respond to those select committee recommendations. I think they can give you a really good steer as to the likely direction of future government policy. So I would absolutely recommend people to take a close interest in the, the select committee system. And the other thing I would say is certainly in terms of if you want to know what Rishi Sunak is likely to think. I think a really good place to start is to to look at what William Haig writes in the The Times every week. I think it's every Tuesday. And there's a real closeness between Haig and, and Sunak. I mean it's well known that Rishi Sunak took over William Hague's you know safe conservative seat in, in Yorkshire. But the connection between the two guys, the two men is, is much, much deeper than that. They obviously hold each other in incredibly high regard. And I think sometimes if you want to know what Rishi Sunak is minded to do in a few months' time, have a read of what William Hague is writing you round about now. Um, I'd love to say that there was a great example of that in today's paper. I did read the William Hague uh, column in (laughs) today's edition, and it's actually, I think, not one of his best, but normally I think he's really, really insightful. And certainly, for example, all the recent restructuring of Whitehall that Rishi Sunak did to give science and technology a much higher profile and, and more power at the heart of government. That was absolutely echoing stuff that William Hague had been writing pretty regularly in the times over the preceding months. So um, those, I think, would be my sort of three recommendations. You know, if the stakes are high, go to a, a public affairs agency, You know, choose the agency carefully, I would say that, wouldn't I? Secondly, take out in the select committee system because that can give you a really good insight into you know, concerns that... Stakeholders have what MPs are thinking on a cross party basis, and then how the government might, might respond to those recommendations. And thirdly, certainly in terms of Rishi, Rishi Sunak's thinking, to have a, a read just once a week of what William Hague is writing. I wish I could say, I, I could you know, put forward the name of someone who, who writes equally well from a, a sort of Starmer esque point of view. I'm not sure I've come across that person yet, but for, for, for Rishi Sunak definitely William Hague
1: is worth it. Thank you very much Ian. You've given us, say made a case for us being involved and interested in what what politics means for organisations and influences the way we communicate and you've given us some some great insights into how to do it, particularly on the parliamentary committees. In fact, I never thought we'd hear the phrase, I'm a massive fan of the parliamentary select committee system on the podcast, so thank you for (laughs) including that. But it's a a great insight into ways in which we can see how the government's thinking and how it's formulating policies and what that, that might mean. So Thank you for joining us. Thank you for those insights. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected, an inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.